Okay, so our guest today is one of my favorite people in the entire world, and I tell everyone that they're one of my favorites, but this time I really mean it. Tony Capicelli, also known as Cap, is, I'll let you do your uh, your introduction. Who are you? Why are you important? Why are we talking? Because uh, I coached you at UNLV. That's the only reason I'm important. It's the only reason we're talking right now. Well, you also have a, a level of importance at this time in your life, too, not... We're not, we're not basing off our relationship from seven years ago. <laughs> well, it's been seven years. Uh, yeah, I'm mm. managing. Our, six, is it? Six or six years. You, you were four, 2014. 14, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, currently managing the Ogden Raptors, our rookie advanced team for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Not currently managing, just uh, I will be in June, hopefully. I was going to say, you're currently laying in bed. So I'm currently on my bed <laughs> with my Yeti of coffee. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I really, I really do mean that just, I don't want to make you cry, but you are really one of the probably three coaches that have had made such a serious impact on me just in the one year that, that you were my coach, that our relationship kept going. Even after we, like you weren't my coach anymore, we coached against each other for a year when you were at uh, New Mexico and that was super strange, but we've, I mean, it allowed us to stay close and, and in contact all the time. Um, but yeah, for sure. And I, I appreciate that. Cause like, you know, you've done it. Like, that's why we do this. I mean, that's why, that's why we get into coaching to hopefully impact players and impact people and have a lasting impact beyond just baseball. Um, and hopefully keep those relationships going, you know, with, with specific guys, especially it's not everybody, but the ones, the relationships, I think you keep going after baseball and especially after you coach somebody is, is pretty special. So I love you as well. You didn't tell me that, but I do love you. I, I love you. I think I've told you that multiple times, but we can, yeah, more than once. We, it's something that, you know, people don't say enough and, and I love you in a, no problem saying that. I love you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, you copied my beard. Um, and now yours is more great, uh, yeah, I think to, honestly, I have some gray hairs like randomly trickled in there, but your, yeah. yours are all focused in that one area. So it kind of, yeah. it kind of looks I get, like I get a little bit there, more here. I get a little bit of a hard time because there's some red in there. But I get that too a lot. It's yeah. they're like, oh, why do you have a red beard? I'm like, how am I supposed to know the answer to that question? Like, no it, idea. Just, it just happens. But um, no, you, I mean, it, it was some, it's kind of weird. Like, I just want to talk about the coach player relationship a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you were somebody that, I mean, Nielsen was the volunteer the year before. He was, my relationship with you was very similar to my relationship with him. Like anytime I've got anything going on, I reach out to both of you to get your opinion on it. Um, just Or just normal conversation bullshitting. But the thing I, I think allowed us to become so close even while you were coaching and stay close after was that you were honest all the time. You were always willing to put in extra work. And then I specifically remember, um, I don't know what hotel it was at. I think it was in the lobby in Colorado Springs. Um, it could have honestly been in New Mexico. I don't know, but I was literally ready to jump off the roof because we were a month into the season and I was hitting like a hundred and you texted me and said, Hey, meet me, meet me in the lobby. And we sat there for an, for an hour or whatever it was. And we just talked and I can't, I don't exactly remember what you said, but I remember leaving that feeling a hell of a lot better about myself. And, and to me, that was 
one of the most important times or conversations or and I was lucky to have you there because you just reassured me like hey you belong here like you're going to stay in in that in that role and we believe that you're going to turn this around and and I'm going to help you turn it around and I always knew that no matter what I needed you were going to be there as a coach and as soon as that season ended it was like okay he's no longer my coach we kind of became friends and I, I don't know if you remember that conversation and I don't know where I fall in your list of favorite people that you coach, but I hope I'm near the top. Um, you are near the top. Yeah, good. Am I at the top? You are near the top. Near the top. You are. Who would you uh, Who would you rank? What's your What's your order here? I'm curious because I mean you've been coaching for 472 years, so uh, there, there's a lot of players that have gone through your systems. So I would say you are definitely up there, uh, really high. There's so 2009, I was coaching at Edison High School in, in Huntington Beach, and we went through a really tough time um, in terms of some off-field stuff that year, and it kind of brought everybody a little bit more together. Um, so there's some guys from that that club, I think, that will always kind of hold a special place for me. Um, but then also, as, as far as, like, guys I coach between UNLV, uh, UNM, you know, obviously, you're definitely up there. Drop some you're names, my, though. I want to hear. Favorite non how about non-catcher? You're definitely up there in terms of a non-catcher. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird because like looking back at it, we weren't you weren't my position coach. You weren't yeah. you weren't technically the hitting coach, but we all came to you just like we all went to Nielsen the year before, just because it was we were closer in age. You weren't mm -hmm. that far removed from playing, so it, it was easier. You understood what we were going through, and not that the other coaches didn't, but it was just an uh, level of ease when it came to communication. Um I, I want you to tell me why I'm at the top of your list. Why you are or why you're not? Why, no, why, why I'm near the top. I don't need to know why I'm not at I the think, top. You know, I think for one, I, I do remember that conversation. I think we're in Colorado Springs uh, at the Embassy Suites. And, Great breakfast. Know, really good breakfast. And, you know, I remember having that conversation because it's, it is a difficult thing, especially as a senior. You know, you're going through a difficult time. You're struggling a little bit. You're not you're not necessarily playing with that freedom that you need to play with because you're putting a little bit more expectations on yourself. Um, you know, it's your last year, you're wanting to get drafted, you know, so a lot of times guys can start depressed. Certain guys like yourself and some others that I've had, um, you just have to know when there's a time for your, that text to get sent of, Hey, like, let's sit down and chat. Um, there's other guys that they just want to work through it themselves and they don't want to talk. There's other guys that it's like, Hey, just, send a text, you know, let a guy know that you're there for him. And if he needs to talk, he's going to talk to you. And if not, then, you know, at least you did everything you could to, to try and be there for him, you know? So because of that, the fact that you're receptive to things when you were struggling, when you were going good, I think you were pretty much always the same guy. Um, whether you were going good, whether you were going bad, like, yes, kind of had to talk you off the cliff a little bit, but you're also a terrific leader. You know, guys would follow you guys would do, a lot for you, you know, and I think that that made me respect you as a player, knowing that for me, I'd want to play with a guy that was handling himself the way that you handled yourself. So that's why I always respected you from a coach to player perspective. Yeah, we also had, I mean, outside of the being depressed, I mean, I was depressed. It was, it was like, I had a really good year the year before and going into that, going into that senior season, it was like, okay, I got to do this. Like, this is my team. I have to carry us. And we were winning at the beginning of the year and I wasn't doing shit. And it was like, Oh, come on, man. Like you're going to, yeah. you're going to fuck it up like this. Um, but I think, uh, something that's kind of weird is that 
when I coached, I took, obviously you take things from every coach that you ever coach for. There's positives and negatives from everybody's sure. coaching styles. And, and I like to pick little, little things from everybody, but having like the good relationship that I had with you and with Nielsen, it was, I wanted to get to a level where the players really respected what I had to say. And, and in that sense, I was brutally honest with guys. Like I didn't hold back because I, I mean, I went from being a Juco guy to, to not even like having a chance to not make the team to being that leader my senior year. So it was like, I, I went through the shit. Like I understand what it's like to want to jump off the roof of the hotel. I understand what it's like to be on top of the world. And I wanted to get the guys to understand what it really takes. And I think a lot of guys probably took that the wrong way. I don't know if it's a little bit of a softer generation or what it is, but that brutal honesty took kind of that relationship out of the picture with a lot of guys, but there's a select group from each team, four, five, six guys that, that respected that. And, and they want to hear it. They wanted to hear it. They want to be, they wanted to be great. They wanted to be the best. And so they're going to listen to anybody. And there's only now a couple guys that I stay in contact with on that same level of when I coached them. But now that there's a lot of guys, now that I'm not coaching, I've noticed the relationship has changed a lot. And I think guys probably get to realize like, okay, he's not like this all the time. And yeah. I, that's pretty cool. There's that was it. I think it was Joe Madden a couple of years back said something like, you know, if I'm brutally honest with you, or if I'm completely truthful with you, like you might be mad at me, you might hate me right now, but in the long run, you're going to respect the fact that, you know, I kind of told you what you needed to hear. So yeah. I think sometimes those difficult conversations have to take place and they're not always fun especially when you like a guy, like you're going to like most of the people that you coach. You're going to like most of the people that you're around. Um, and liking them is really irrelevant. I mean, you have to take your job for what it is and be able to help them. My job as a coach is to help each guy advance their career, whatever that might mean for them, whether it's in college, getting to pro ball and pro ball, getting to the big leagues, you know, and if I don't tell them what I, what they need to hear or tell them everything that I have to offer them, I'm really doing them a disservice. Yeah. So I'm trying to be mean and just, to be honest. Yeah. And I think that's why you've, you've been a successful coach. I mean, you've, like you said, you, you were a high school coach. I mean, you've literally coached at every single level mm -hmm. and it's kind of, it's weird because I still look back to you being the volunteer and I, I think about like what I thought about you then. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy literally does everything. He works with the hitters. He works with the catchers. He's talking to guys off the field. He's doing extra work with them and you didn't get paid shit for money. And I remember thinking, like at this time, I wasn't thinking I was going to be a coach, but I remember thinking, like, how the fuck is this guy surviving? Like, you you literally spent ev like every waking hour at the field, um, doing shit from field work to cleaning like cleaning stuff up, organizing practices. Um, I'm not really sure what went on in the office behind the scenes, but I just remember looking back and thinking, how was this guy doing it? I think you were 33 at the time, um, and you had gone. I mean, you'd already been through the grind of of coaching since you were an ex player. So what I, what I want to talk about is like your progression through coaching. And I mean, now you, um, you're managing, this is the first time you've managed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. now you went from, like you said, Edison high school in 09. And now 11 years later, you're, you're a manager in professional baseball. So talk to me about um, just that progression and, and how you've, you've evolved as a coach. So I got done at Nevada playing in 2003 and didn't get drafted. You know, I thought I was going to have a chance, but I wasn't very good at baseball. Um, <laughs> I ended up playing independent ball for a couple weeks and the shoulder went out and, you know, that was it. 
So called up Matt Moziello at my old high school, and you know his brother is at uh, TCU, Bill Moziello. Called him up, told him I wanted to come back and coach. And he's like, yeah, you know, if you want to coach the freshman team, you know, we got a spot for you. I'm like, sweet. Like, let's do it. You know, got back there, um, did my freshman, did the freshman team. The next year, I ended up trying to play again, wound up in Tacoma, Washington. Was a head coach at a small school up there that was like 180 kids between like kindergarten and senior year. Yeah, um, It was a tiny little town. Like, it was awesome. Um, the next year, I went back to Edison for four more years. And 2009, we were really good, got to the CIF finals. Um, and I just kind of, I'd, I'd really wanted to coach college baseball. And 2007, I'd actually taken a job at Orange Coast College with John Altabelli and ended up not going because I just started my master's program. So I finished up at Edison, left that summer after we got done in 09. I was in Germany coaching, um, starting to send some emails out, trying to get a JUCO job didn't want to reach back out to Alto because he'd already hired me. And then I had left because I wanted to go to school. So I got a job at Irvine Valley college, um, ended up spending four years there. I did a summer in the Cape Cod league, did four summers in Alaska. Um, and then Stolte called and, and got me in touch with Tim chambers, um, to come to UNLV. So I was up in Alaska at the time, kind of going through, uh, like a interviewish type process talking to chambers and uh and trying to figure out if it would be a good fit so ended up you, staying there you for played me. for stolte right so that's how yeah. the connection okay yeah i played for him in nevada um so did there for for 14 for your senior year and then i was going back up to alaska that summer and ray birmingham had offered me the same spot at new mexico and at the time thinking you know like this is a good new mexico is a good program and like they were going going really well and so really liked the opportunity that that Berm was offering me. So went over to UNM, um, stayed there for three years and kind of decided at the end of my third year that, you know, wasn't, wasn't going to be, uh, going to be going back. So I, it was really funny because the, the November before that I got an email from Gabe Kapler and he started, you know, this conversation with me about stuff with the Dodgers. And I thought he was just kind of asking about some players because we had some some pretty good players. Um, so we started chatting, and, and it wasn't until we had four or five conversations that I told Katie, like, I think I'm getting interviewed for a job. Yeah. <laughs> and ended up the the first year got or the first time we went through it got turned down for the job. Um, said you know we'll keep in touch, and I'm thinking okay whatever. Go through the season in 17. Left. I was we moved to Phoenix. Uh, I was going to South Mountain Community College. I was going to teach and, and coach and do that whole thing there. The day after we came out here, Gabe called me back and, and offered me a spot with the Dodgers. So I came out here in the summer of 17 and uh, kind of been out here ever since. And, and this will be my first year going out to, to manage uh, one of our affiliates. I, I remember the first, like the first time that you and Kapler had gotten contact because obviously we stayed in touch. We talked a lot. Hey, what's going on? When you were leaving New Mexico, it was... Like, okay, where are you going to go? And oh. every, I mean, I the way I remember it, every time like Kapler sent you an email, you would text me or, or we would just be talking and, and that would come up. I remember thinking like, damn, that would be the ultimate move is for him to mm-hmm. not have to go to South Mountain and, and do that coaching, but to get yeah. a job with the Dodgers. And ju- just the fact that you were communicating with Gabe Kapler, I thought was super cool just because of being a Red Sox fan. But yeah. You, I mean, you essentially jumped in for the Dodgers as kind of like uh, you were a roving instructor. With that, is that how? No, I was. I was kind of going into as like working with hitters. Yeah, 
Um, and then I, I got there and I realized like guys that are working with hitters are significantly better than I am with the, with the swing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, talking with hitting or talking about the swing, I think are two different conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, guys that we have in our organization that are coaching hitters, they're really, really good with the swing and I'm, they're just better than me. Um, I thought I could help with the hitting stuff, but just in terms of breaking the swing down, there were guys that were just better than I was. So my, my position kind of evolved a little bit for the following year. I kind of started helping out a little bit more with, with catchers. Um, and then I was with Mark Curtanian and Mark had me coaching third base, um, you know, doing some more stuff with the catchers, kind of helping out with the offense. So it was a little bit of everything. Um, and then last year it kind of morphed a little bit more to like majority of my time with the catchers, helping out our, our catching coordinator when he was in big league camp, um, just kind of doing whatever I could to, to help out more on that end. And then doing more with like our defensive positioning. And so everything, it's kind of morphed over, over the last couple of years um, into like where I'm at right now. And I think the Dodgers do a really good job of not necessarily putting you in a, in a position and keeping you there. Um, they'll move you around towards what your strengths are and how you can most benefit the organization. Yeah. Okay. So you said something cool there. I haven't had the opportunity really to talk hitting with anybody because, I mean, most of the guys that I've had on or pitchers they just just from i mean you know how it is we had to get the bullpens ready for them to come throw during the off season so i got close with them and and so most of the guys that i know that are still playing are pitchers and the the conversation of hitting really hasn't come up we've talked a lot about the mental stuff but i want to i want to get a little into a little hitting i didn't really plan about this but you said you're good at talking about hitting but then there's the other coaches are really good at talking about the swing and to somebody that doesn't really know hitting at all, or some younger guy that's, that's listening to this. Can you explain the, explain what you mean? Like you're a good hitting coach, but there's other guys that are way better swing, swing coaches. I think some guys have a knack for either taking the guy in the cage and breaking down the mechanics of a swing. doesn't mean it's necessarily going to correlate to what, like what's happening in the game, like in game success or failure, but I, but they're really good with breaking down the swing and they're really good also with like seeing a swing in the game and breaking that down in terms of mechanical movements. And, you know, these guys that are, are working with us and, and a lot of organizations, but especially our guys that I've seen, they do a really good job of just understanding the way the body works. Um, how you're, if you're making it, if you're taking a swing that doesn't um, work mechanically, if it doesn't work in terms of how your body moves, these guys are doing a really good job of figuring that stuff out. I feel like my strength in terms of hitting is more along the lines of, you know, how's the guy feeling in the box? Like, is he prepared to hit? Um, is he setting a plan? Is he ready to go? Like, and not breaking down the swing. And I think there's a place for both. It's just really difficult to justify if I'm the guy that can help out with the approach or how a guy's feeling in the box or getting him ready to hit, where there's another guy that's really good with the swing that can also help out with that side of it. It's hard to justify keeping me in that role when somebody else could do that same thing, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, so, totally. So, like, breaking down the, the swing versus the approach or the swing versus just making a plan, setting a plan. And then, especially with younger hitters, like, judging the fact that did you set a plan, did you stay with the plan, or did you, like, vacate that plan as soon as things got a little bit difficult? So, I think, especially with young hitters, it's really difficult to, you know, keep working on the swing while you're working on, on the plan and on just becoming a hitter and not just becoming a really good swinger. Yeah. So I think there's a place, obviously, for both. It's just you just got to find that marriage between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think it's pretty rare that you find a coach that's really good at both of them. Um, I mean, I don't really know many big league hitting coaches, but 
I would think that those guys probably are, are good at both, but that's why you look at staffs and they have multiple hitting coaches. And, and mm-hmm. that's why you have a, a, a hitting coordinator for all the minor leagues and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I think when you coached me, I think that was something that I, a piece that I took from you was, I mean, obviously I had, I have a background of, of mental stuff just from junior college and then the, the coaching that I received the year before you were there, but leaving leaving it at bat, coming back to the dugout. I just remember the conversations like with you, it was never, it was never a mechanical thing. Even our shit in the cages, it wasn't, we weren't really trying to tweak the swing that much. It was more like, let's get some drills going to get you back to the right mindset, get your body in a good position and then let it take over. But coming back and evaluating at bats, I think I learned a lot from you in the sense that, Hey, what was I on time? And did I swing at the pitch that I wanted to swing at? And that took a long time to, really grasp that concept because it's easy to be like, oh shit, like why didn't I, or why did I foul that pitch off? It was because my swing was fucked up. And then once you get to the mechanical aspect of it in game, you're mm-hmm. almost screwed for the rest of your bats. Would you agree and with then, that? In addition to that, like you have guys that, you know, they'll take a, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll strike out or whatever and they come back in the dugout and, you know, they're not happy with the result they just had. And their first thing they want to ask is how was that swing? Well, the swing was outstanding. Like it really looked good. Now, it was a fastball in the dirt, but like the swing itself was really good. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to be able to separate the two. If you're not taking a good swing and a good pitch, like there you go. Like let's just start right there and then we can move on to everything else that has to do with hitting. But if we're not swinging good pitches, then it makes it really difficult to hit. I mean, I think that becomes the basis of it. And then we can branch out in a lot of different areas from there. Yeah. I just, there's, I literally have one at bat from not me playing, but me coaching one situation where a kid pinch hits swings at two curveballs in the dirt and then takes a cock shot for strike three mm-hmm. we the weekend ends we go back home and at practice the following tuesday he comes up to me and he goes hey coach can we talk and i don't want to mention his name but uh he's i said yeah what's going on he goes how did my swing look on sunday i'm like what he's like how did my swing look i'm like you mean the two swings that you took on curveballs in the dirt? And he's like, yeah, I mean, like, the swing felt really good. I'm like, it doesn't matter how good your swing felt. You swung at two pitches that are unhittable, and then you took the one pitch that you could have drove. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but, like, how would my swing look? Like, you need to get in your fat head that it doesn't matter how good your swing was because you swung at shit pitches and you took the good ones. And yeah. there's a there's a, a clear divide or there was a clear divide coaching of guys that understood that and guys that were searching for mechanical things. And mm-hmm. I was a firm, like I stood behind this belief and I still stand behind this belief that a guy with a shitty swing, there's let's say not shitty, an average swing and a great approach is going to be more successful than a guy with a great swing and a shitty approach. And I think, yes, a hundred percent. If you don't, if you're, if you're swinging at everything the pitcher's throwing at you, you know, like you have no plan, you have no adjustability in your swing, you have none of that going for you. You, you can't really expect to be a good hitter. You know, it, it looks great when you take the good swing, but again, when you're when you're not swinging at pitches that you can handle, and you don't understand the difference between pitches you can hit, pitches you can do damage with, that makes it a really difficult conversation with guys. You know, when the pitcher paints up and you know, throws you that bastard pitch that you can't do anything with and you're trying to yank it for a homer, like you're not going to be able to do that at some points. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be facing a real dude on the mound and your approach might have to change based off that day. You know, you're facing a dude and the wind's blowing straight in from left field. Like 
you want to try and pull homers off that guy, it's not giving you anything to pull. Your stubbornness is going to beat you really quickly. Yeah. So it's, it's being adaptable to, to the environment, being adaptable to who's on the mound, you know, understanding who you are as a player, understanding what your role is as a hitter, what your role is in the position and the lineup that you're in. So I think all those things come into play. You know, everybody wants to hit home runs and, I, and it's, you know, they're sweet and everything, but you know, certain guys, they're not going to make a career out of hitting three home runs in a year. Yeah. Okay. So here's my, that's, that's the home run thing is something that has always got to me. And it's almost as if people think that, are you still there? Okay. You froze with the coffee thing, thing in yeah. front of your face. There you go. Um, oh, sorry. People think that home runs are hit on purpose. Like you go up there and you try and hit a home run and you hit the home run or you most of the time strike out, roll over. What, I mean, what I've took from guys that coached me into, into coaching was that your home runs are hit on accident. And that's not saying like it's a fluke that you hit it, but it's just, you had your approach, you swung at the right pitch and you hit it on the right part of the bat. And almost any time in my four years of coaching that a guy went up and tried to hit a home run, they failed. And it was like, hey, do you, do you realize why you just struck out right there? I'm like, no, not really. Well, because you swung out of your ass, like at a pitch right down the middle rather than taking your normal swing. And it, it, it's, it was really hard to get guys to understand that in leverage counts, 2-0, 3-1, anytime you're in a leverage count, you just got to take your normal swing at the right pitch. Like you're not going to drive it because you swing harder in that count. And most of the time when you do that, you're going to fail. And that's when guys get like when you pop up in a 2-0 situation, that's arguably the most frustrating thing ever. And you do that most of the time. I mean, obviously sometimes you're going to swing at the right pitch and just and and miss it. But when you swing out of your ass, it's not going to work. Yeah. And, And here's the thing, like we have, we have the idea that we're going to try and hit everything hard. You know, we're going to try and drive things every time we swing the bat. Um, obviously, situations are going to dictate that possibly changing. But for the most part, in most situations, we're going to try and drive the ball, hit the ball hard, do damage, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, like guys are going to hit homers at times when they're trying to hit homers because they're trying to hit homers every single time they swing the bat. <laughs> Um, but then you've also got guys that, you know, they're going to get big on two Oh, they're going to get big on three Oh three one. And so some of those guys, it's hard because you almost feel like you have to put the reins on them a little bit because you know that they're just going to swing out of their shoes every time they get into those counts. Mm-hmm. And, and I've made the mistake as a coach numerous times where, you know, we're taking batting practice and we're working on, you know, moving the guy over from second or third and you, know, you get up a guy's butt because he took a fastball inside and BP and he tried to, you know, fillet it to the right side. And it's like, you know, we always tell guys, hey, get that fastball away. Well, the pitcher's not going to lay a four-seam fastball on the outside corner for you so that you can get your job done. Mm-hmm. Like, you better be able to battle a little bit and get the job done on some tough pitches. You know, that two-seam riding in on your hands that you've got to be able to fight. I mean, maybe you're not that guy that's supposed to do that. Maybe you're that guy that's going to work with that runner at second base and, and still try and drive the ball out of the yard, and that's fine. Everyone's got their role. But – understanding counts, understanding situations, understanding, you know, the inning, the scoreboard, all those things come into play. And so I think a lot of times as coaches, we put a blanket statement on things like, Hey, it's, it's move the guy over at all costs. Well, maybe the situation doesn't call for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've got, you know, a four run lead, a three run lead, and we want to try and expand it. And maybe we're down um, a couple of runs and, and we need to get something rolling right here. And we're going to, we still want to try and hit a double yeah. because one run's not going to do us any good. So understanding the situation, playing into that situation, 
you know, playing into the count, those things come into play. And I think guys get to those two Oh, you know, those two Oh situations, three, one situations. And they think I'm just going to swing as hard as possible. Yeah. When they tie themselves up or they roll over and they're like you said, there's nothing more infuriating than that, you know, two hop one to three put out and you know, you're jogging back to the dugout, you know, really unhappy um, versus just trying to hit the ball hard. You know, if yeah. you're trying to just hit the ball hard every time, then I think your approach changes a little bit and you don't have to make one situation bigger than another, make one count bigger than another. Yeah. It was, uh, it took me a long time to break this mold, but in junior college we had like literally, if there's a guy on second base with nobody out, it was Mm -hmm. ground ball to second base. Like what situation does a ground ball to second base not get the job done? You Mm -hmm. hit a ground ball to second base, the guy's getting over to third. There's guys on second and third. You hit, you hit a ground ball to second base, that guy's scoring, the other guy's getting over. And it took me a long time to break that. And I don't even know if I ever broke that mold as a player, but mm-hmm. after maybe being able to realize and, and sit back and see things from a different perspective, if you get a pitch on the inside corner that you're on time for, like by all means, fucking rope one to left field. Or mm-hmm. like, that's why I didn't get upset at guys that in those situations, like guy on second, they hammered a ball, a line drive right at the third baseman. And they get, they come back and they'd be pissed that they didn't get the job done. And trying to explain to them, hey, you were on time and you swung at a good pitch that, that you're pretty good at hitting. And you were two inches away from missing that guy's glove and having to double. And I, mm-hmm. I look back at my playing career and I think like, oh shit, like maybe if I had a, that mindset then, yeah. it would have gone differently. Not that I think I would have, become anything better than I was but it's maybe just harder harder to understand for those younger guys that it's like hey it's not you don't have to hit a ball the other way like if if you I mean I would rather have you hit a fucking line drive to the left fielder and not get that guy over than try and stay inside a fastball and like flare one to the second baseman well and like I remember we were playing at San Jose State and we were down a run and I think the ninth and runner second, you know, lead off double. I think we're, I think we were down one. I'm pretty sure we're down one. Lead off, lead off double. Jared Main came up who's with the Tigers now. And you know, I could, he could really square up a baseball and he smokes a ball at the shortstop, you know, shortstop jumps and catches it. And, you know, we were playing San Jose and at the time, like we were better than them and we should have beat them. And, you know, we end up not scoring and I kind of got up and a little bit about, you know, get your, get your job done. You know, like that's, that's, that's not a, uh, it's not a productive at bat there in the, in the ninth inning, um, you know, with that guy at second base and, you know, kind of took me a little while to realize how stupid that sounded because right. the shortstop just jumped and caught that ball. Like if that shortstop was two inches shorter or the ball's two inches higher, you know, that's a double in the gap. And now we're playing for the lead. Mm-hmm. So like he did everything he could, he squared the ball up. You know, there's not much more you can do in that situation. And it's the same thing like with you, if you're hitting, if I ask you to hit a ground ball to the second baseman and there's a runner at second base and that's a tying or winning run, I'm giving up a big bat in the middle of my order to, you know, potentially do damage where you could hit a double, hit a homer. You know, now I've given that up because now you've hit your ground ball to second base and we're all supposed to be happy about that. And now they're going to, you're hitting third. Now they walk our four hole guy to set up a double play for the five hole. Like, you know, I'd rather have you try to hit a double and if you strike out we've still got two more guys coming up to bat that can hit yeah it's uh, a it's a weird it's weird like how you your thoughts evolve on it like when, yeah. I, when when i was playing it was literally hit a ground ball to second base get a job mm-hmm. get the job done for the team but a double's better for the team than getting it out and so that's kind of weird but so the game in the last couple of years especially 
um, hitting and especially at the professional level has, has evolved so much. And the last like four years, everything that is shoved in your face about hitting is launch angle, exit velocity, shit like that. So 11 years ago when you were coaching in high school, even when we were at UNLV, we barely had any video if we had any. So you've had, you've been forced to evolve and in, in the last 11 years and especially in the last four years since you've been in pro ball. So what's that, what's that been like for you and, and how do you go from not relying on data to now with the Dodgers? I know because I've seen it in spring training, the hitters, how much data is being registered. Yeah, it's, it's a ton. And, you know, there's a part where you can never replace the hitters feel, um, you know, I, I, the data is great and we've got a ton of information, got a ton of, ton of numbers and metrics and everything available to us. And you cannot replace that. However, asking that guy how he feels in the box that day is your biggest piece of data that you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Like having a conversation with that hitter, I think is the biggest thing. But the problem is you, you have data that can either support and defend what you're seeing, or it can refute what you're seeing. You know, if you're coming in and you're saying, Hey, this guy's really squaring up the ball. Good. And there's a piece of paper that printed out that said, Hey, he's not really, he just hit, you know, 23 balls and, and 22 of them were hit under 70 miles an hour. Like, yeah. So there's always data that can tell you that you're either right or that you're wrong. So using that to, I think that's where the challenge comes with using technology in baseball right now is understanding like what we have access to and how we can use that to make hitters better. Having all the shiny toys for some organizations doesn't really mean anything. If you can't use that data, that information, that technology to make a hitter, a better hitter. Yeah. You know, if they're, if they're just throwing out numbers for the sake of throwing out numbers, you're not really making anybody better. So using the technology for the, for the improvement of the hitter becomes the most important thing. I've had to adapt a lot because again, this is my 16th year and we had the little flip things that we could, you know, take, uh, take some, some pretty grainy video on, Hmm. um, you know, and, and things have definitely evolved. So now it's not just video now, you know, things are getting measured on video. You know, you've got guys that are, you know, connected to wires and sensors and, you know, all sorts of things. And again, I think we're still in a trial and error period with, with certain things of that, where we're trying to find out again, how can we use the data that we have to make them better? Not just here's numbers. They look sweet. Like we have these things here to make you a better hitter. Um, you know, in terms of like launch angle, that's never, we never talk about that. Yeah. It sounds cool on Twitter. Um, you know, guys, no, it that doesn't, gurus, it doesn't, it doesn't I, I was trying to be nice, but, um, <laughs> you know, the gurus, they, they, the launch angle, it sounds sweet, but, we we'll do it like for fun talk about it. But in reality, like you can't teach a kid to have the launch angle swing as they say, which drives me insane because every swing produces a launch angle, whether it's positive or negative, but teaching a launch angle swing is the most asinine thing in the world because you don't know where that pitch is going to be. So you can't take the same swing every single time. Yeah. You know, and some people talk about, well, we're going to work on this swing. That's going to produce this launch angle. And, it's like, dude, that that's asinine to think that you're going to teach a kid that swing. He can take that on any pitch in any location, in any count, in any situation, and that's going to produce that launch angle. It's yeah. insane to me. It's like a, it's like a launch angle is saying like a pitch, like a pitcher has a velocity fastball. You know, like it's it's always been there. Everyone everyone yeah. has a launch angle anytime they make contact with the ball. Um, I'm I'm going to talk with CJ uh, hopefully tomorrow. 
just to, to, to try and get their whole like hitting philosophy. I mean, he's, he's in a different role than you obviously, but um, it'll be interesting to hear what his take on all of it is. Like, obviously he's very active on, on hitting Twitter, um, which I kind of try and stay away from just because it's, I mean, I don't you really, don't, I don't, yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I love CJ and I, I, I just, I think it'll be a great conversation just like this one, but it'll be interesting to get into the hitting part of it. Um, for CJ is another one for me that, like take shots, take some jabs right now. I want to stir some shit up. What, should we just sit here and stir the pot? <laughs> yeah. I, I love that guy. Yeah, he's he's, great. he's beautiful. Yeah. Um, he's to me, he's one of the best guys around. Um, I think what he was able to do at air force with, with, you know, Kaz and, and Jimmy and Toby, like those guys are incredible. I think CJ is an outstanding hitting coach. I think he's going to, absolutely crush the role that he's in with the reds now um he's one of the guys as we kind of said he's one of those few guys i think he's really good with the swing i think he can really break down the swing you know they hired jordan stoffer as well jordan's another guy that's that's right up there they're really good with the swing they're really good with implementing a plan to make players better hitters it's not just the swing like he's going to go and they're going to do drills and he's going to challenge you yeah. he's going to turn the machine up and he's going to he's going to challenge you mm-hmm. and then he's going to be able to talk to you about approach and he's a bright dude he's going to be able to use the data that's available all the information um i think this is going to be a role for cj that he's going to absolutely flourish in because th- this is an environment that he should be in um, with the type of hitters that he really deserves to have around him. I, I really think he's going to do a great job. And I think you're going to get a lot from him in terms of the swing and just making hitters better hitters. Yeah. Uh, he, he does a really, really good job with that. I, th- I think he's, he's on my short list of guys that I think are really good at both sides of that, the approach, the swing, and then the challenge aspect of it and, and creating hitters and not just swingers. Yeah. Obviously you're not the only person that thinks that, I mean, he got that, he got a job from being the hitting coach at air force to being in charge of the minor league, the entire minor league, like offense for the Reds, which it, it'll be interesting. We don't have to talk about him too much more, but just on the data thing for me, I, I mean, I'm looking at it as a perspective of maybe not so much using it as a tool to change shit about people's swings, maybe mainly because I just don't understand how looking at numbers is going to help you fix your swing. But from a scouting perspective, uh, like being able to look at high school and college hitters, like if, if you want to know, say you're a Dodgers scout and you call UNLV and say like, Hey, send me his data from the weekend. And Mm -hmm. to be able to look at that, like look at a guy, like say Kyle Isbell or Bryson Stott print out their, all of their numbers and compare it to successful guys in the major leagues. You're like, Oh shit. Okay. This guy's got it to me. That's, that's kind of where I see the, the data, the importance of data and how relevant it is. Um, obviously you can't substitute just watching a guy play and see how he plays, but from a hitting perspective, I guess I've never grasped the concept of how like you can look at the number or look at numbers, look at exit velocity and, and say like, Oh, you need to swing harder or you need to do this with your swing. I guess, I guess it just doesn't really make sense to me. I think more, I think for like in that example of, you know, a scout calling UNLV or, or whatever and asking about some data for, you know, for not necessarily like a weekend, I don't think, but overall just the kind of the course of their season or their career, wherever they're at. I mean, understanding like what's his contact percentage like? Like, does this dude get the bat on the ball or does he punch out? That's why I would have never worked in pro ball because I struck out an alarming rate. Yeah, join the guys club. that. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. The guys that could you know really get the bat on the ball, like 
does he hit, does he make contact? Does he make solid contact? Like whatever you consider as an organization to be hard contact. How often is that guy above that line? We're talking about Bryson Stott. Like how often does that dude hit a ball 90 miles an hour off the bat, like consistently, like, is that happening a lot or is it not happening? Is he filleting balls and just flaring balls in for base hits? Or is he driving balls in the gap? You know, like what's his, you know, ISO, what are those numbers looking like in terms of his power production you know, the doubles, homers, the extra base hits, slugging, is he getting on base? And then figuring out what you what do you value as an organization? If your organization doesn't value, you know, the speed guys that can get on base and play into a role, then is that guy not necessarily stuck, but a guy that is just able to get on base and steal some bags. If you don't value that as an organization, are you wasting money drafting that guy? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want the guy with big power potential, who you don't really know if he's ever gonna actually get to his power, he just may hit. He may hit for some power. Like, is that guy worth taking higher than the guy that's going to steal some bags? Mm-hmm. Because you value, you know, slugging percentage over the, the ability to get on base and, and steal some bags. So I think I think the organization and what they what they value most becomes really critical. And, and using data to analyze players, their performance, their expected uh, production in the future, um, you know, and figuring out. Like I said, what's important and how you're going to get guys to to produce with what tools they have. Perfect. That makes yeah. That okay. So that makes sense. So I guess transitioning into into Dodger talk. What do you guys value as an organization? Off, I guess just offensively. I don't really care about the pitching side. I mean, we. I mean this authentically. We we value good hitters. Complete hitters. Oh, wow. Breaking right. news. The Dodgers right. value you know, like, hitters. Come on. Yeah, tweet that. It's, <laughs> you know, we're not we're not sitting in the cage going, okay, hey, if you hit the ball on a line, then it's bad. You know, you see guys, and I say Twitter because I, I think it's stupid. But the there's, I think it's the worst. It, it is. It is the absolute worst thing in the world. But um, don't get me started. <laughs> when guys are hitting line drives in the, in the back of the cage and – you know, is that good? Is it bad? You know, people will tweet out their disagreements, you know, as much as, as they want. But we're trying to teach guys and get guys to hit balls hard a lot. Like, that's a good thing. And I, I think that makes it as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, you hit the ball hard a lot, you're going to have a better chance of being successful. Yeah. Yes, we would prefer balls driven to the outfield than ground balls through the six hole. But if you're hitting one hoppers through the six hole 105 miles an hour, like, that's you know, it's going to get you some hits and yeah. you are going to miss hit a ball or not necessarily square it up and be able to drive the ball in the air and still have some success doing that. Like, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, so that, that becomes kind of the core of what I think our hitting coaches are really trying to do is get guys to get in the box, compete and hit balls hard as often as possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody would be stupid to, to not have that. Um, the, you would the, think, the, yeah, you would think it's, but no, um, it's I, it's Twitter. Like you, people get on there, and then it's just like, oh, this guy has the, a cage, like he runs. Then obviously, he must know what he's talking about. But f- let's stop talking about Twitter. Um, yeah, it, it it shows. I mean, the way that the Dodgers, just the big league club, has hit the last few years, it they hit the ball fucking hard, and they're hitting home runs, and and they're at the top of the league in home runs, and then at the end of the year. They're always there. I mean, they haven't. You guys haven't won a World Series, but it's it's gonna happen just because of that offense. And then obviously you put the the pieces in place, like you have Kershaw and you have Walker Bueller, who's gonna be the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time, just because he's a competitor and he's passionate. But the offense, 
it shows and it shows the, the, those hitters in that lineup they hit the ball hard there's not really you don't see many slap guys mm-hmm. even i mean in the, for the Dodgers or major league baseball at all like you think back to i think back to the like Red Sox teams that um like Dave Roberts stealing second base oh, yeah. you really don't have that kind of offense anymore you you don't see that very often especially in the teams that are like super successful and, and are playing at the end of the year there's not really those speed guys anymore that are you're just there because you're fast like guys that come up like oh this dude mashes doubles and home runs all day yeah. and, and plays the shit out of the outfield so the game has changed in the last couple of years just from a fan's perspective there's no bunting anymore like hardly ever is there a bunt even pitchers are going up there hacking um, you don't really see a lot of stolen bases, which, which to me is crazy. Don't you? Well, if we were, yeah. speed, we were speed guys. I mean, we were, you and I were out there to, to steal bags and, yeah, and, and go first guys. to third. I, yeah. Big, big speed guys over here. Yeah. I, I was, we were detrimental to the team when we got on first. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, for, I, okay. Two things. As far as our organization from the DSL up to the big leagues, I think we're in the top three in most offensive categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's attributed to our hitting coordinators, our hitting coaches. Um, those guys like legitimately are, they work really hard. And this isn't to say other people don't work hard. I hate when people say they work hard, but yeah. like they really work to identify guys strengths and weaknesses. And they really dig in and work on guys in terms of their head, their, their swing, their approach. They use technology to really help guys improve. You know, they really, really dig in and they're not afraid to seek out information from other people, maybe people outside of the organization. They're not afraid to let their guard down and have conversations with players, which could be scary for a hitting coach because you don't want to put that doubt in the hitter's head Mm -hmm. that the coach is going to you to find out where you're at. But I think it also shows like a vulnerability where, hey, like this dude's really trying to help me out. And he's really interested in what I have to say and my feedback as the guy that's standing in the box with the bat in my hand yeah. versus the hitting coach that says, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, and you'll be successful. Go get them. And when you're not, now you doubt everything they have to say. Mm-hmm. I think opening up and having that conversation, just an open conversation, I think has really helped from like the big leagues all the way down to the lowest level of our, of our minor leagues. Yeah. I think that's something that's been really ingrained in our hitting coaches, and they do an incredible job of doing that. Um, as for just the game, like you said, with the stolen bases, I think that's going to change this year. I think you're going to start seeing more stolen bases happening. I think you're going to start seeing um, a little bit of a shift in some offensive things, the way the game is played. You know, I think when people talk about bunting and, and hitting and running and hitting and running, hitting and running, whatever you say. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure, um, but I think those things are going to kind of come back a little bit. I, I think part of the problem is these pitchers are so good. Like they're, they're really, really good. And these guys have elite stuff. They have elite command. They have an elite put away pitch. Like if you think you want to get in the box and Walker Bueller, there's zero chance of that. His bullpens are unbelievable to watch yeah. and really makes me happy that I don't have to step in the box against him. Yeah. But the ability to maybe square a guy up, maybe he misses a location and you know, you clip him for a three run Homer is probably more likely than, you know, getting a bunt down because again, like we talk about bunting, like it's easy, Yeah, you know, but we're just going to bunt him over. Well, the dude's still throwing 98 with ride or sink. It's not easy to get a bunt down. So 
we, we get rid of that kind of thought process that we want to bun them over. So it's just automatic that it's going to get done. Mm -hmm. We don't practice it enough. Nobody practices it enough to be able to get in the box against that guy and yeah. execute a bunt. And then not only do you get the bunt down, now you have to come up with a hit or two hits. Yeah. You know, you're, like I said, you're more likely, I think, to clip a guy for that three run homer than you are to, uh, you know, get a bunt down and then follow up with a base hit. I think it's like bunting is a, I mean, it's, it's a lost art. I, I took pride in bunting. I, I thought it was fun as shit to bunt because it, mm -hmm. it was really hard. And, and just to be able to have that barrel control was fun. But that you, like you said, you can't practice that. You, me throwing BP to you, I could throw you 150 fastballs, curveballs for you to bunt. But it's coming in at 58 miles an hour It's and yeah. it's dead straight. So it, it's tough. But to get guys, I mean, especially at the college level, we su we've sucked at bunting. Like mm -hmm. every time I was there, we practiced bunting every day. But you can't you can't make it game like also no kid wants to go up there and bunt they want to go up there and hit that double and and you have to convince yourself that it's what's best for the team and at the mm -hmm. college level that i mean it's all about the team it's it, obviously there's guys that are trying to get drafted but the better you do as a team the more eyes that are going to be on you so it's it's really hard to get guys to want a bunt to go up there and then they get the bunt signal whatever it is and be like oh yeah shit i'm i gotta get this down i gotta get this down rather than like a oh, fuck i got a bunt and they just half-ass it till they get the two strikes and they get the swing um bunting's boring so we don't have to talk about it anymore but just switching over to you personally is okay so you're going into a manager role obviously this is the most screwed up time in in history right now with with all sports being done but the Dodgers have their philosophy. What are you, what are you going to do? What's your mission as a manager or what's, I guess, what's your, your philosophy for your team going to be? Well, I mean, for one, it, getting into a leadership type of a role is going to be different for me. I mean, I think everybody that we're around is in some sort of a leadership role. Um, but now, you know, I was really lucky. Like since I've got, since I've, gotten hired by the Dodgers. I was with Danny Dorn last year who, you know, he I played against him in college when he was at Cal State Fullerton. He played in the big leagues. I was with Mark Curtanian that you know and love. Um, and I was with John Shoemaker, who's a legend of the Dodgers. And seeing those guys go through kind of their day-to-day -day and, and how they are able to allow and promote the staff to do the things that are going to really assist making their careers better um, was a really good example for me. You know, understanding that I think as a manager, players kind of look to you, but also the staff looks to you. Mm -hmm. And I have to make sure that I'm being very aware of, for one, what our staff is doing, you know, how they're developing as coaches. Um, the leadership qualities I think that good leaders have are that they lead everybody around them and they allow the people to uh there are a lot of the people there around to also lead and so now it takes you know putting other people in positions that maybe i want to be in. maybe i want to coach third base but i know my other coach wants to coach third base also well yeah. you know the way that i can split time with him you know because that is something that's important to me and i do want to advance my career but i also want to help him advance his career if that's a goal and aspiration that he has like mark was incredible at that you know mark said hey if you're not managing i failed you and I was like, wow, now I don't want to let him down because, you know, he's giving me this opportunity and I better run with it. Well, now I have to give somebody else that opportunity because mm -hmm. that was given to me by Mark and by Danny, you know, and then being around John Shoemaker, you know, just seeing the leadership he provided 
for the players, for the staff, you know, pushing guys to maybe get out of their comfort zone a little bit. Um, I think that's also a part of it. Like I was able to do that last year. Danny allowed me to kind of step out of my comfort zone and do some infield and outfield positioning, which I had never done before, but it was really, really beneficial for me. And, you know, now it's going to kind of be my turn to have somebody else do that and, and put them into that role where, you know, they might be a little bit uncomfortable doing something, but hopefully that advances their career to where they want it to go. I want to play for you again. Let's go. Yeah. You think you can get me a contract? <laughs> we'll talk to somebody. Yeah. Um, just, okay. Those, the two guys that you just talked about, Kurtanian, um, I love that guy. Yeah. I barely know him. I, Joey, mm-hmm. Joey played for him in summer ball, wherever in Texas. And the first time I met him, it was like, we just like, we hit it off. He was so nice. Yeah. And, and you could tell he was so passionate. He, he wanted to talk about Joey. He wanted to talk about me. He already knew a lot about me. And then when he started working with the Dodgers, it was like, oh shit, this guy's gonna, this guy's gonna do well. And, and like you said, he just wants what's, he wants to make everybody better. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's something that like you just said, you want to do the same thing. You want to put those guys, not only your staff, but your players in a, in a position to succeed. And it's, and it's, yeah, you want to probably become a big league manager, I would imagine at some point, big league coach, whatever that, whatever role you're in, but to have that goal to make everybody else around you better and give them a chance to succeed. I don't know who you learned that from, but, but Mark definitely has always had that vibe. And even though we had no con- like real connection, he never coached me or we mm-hmm. never coached together. He wanted, he always wanted to know how I was doing and, and if there was anything that he could do to help, which was, I mean, it makes, if he called me right now and asked me to do something, I would do it for him just because mm-hmm. I know the kind of guy he is. And uh, Shoemaker, I remember going, Joey was playing for Missoula and they were playing in Ogden. So mm-hmm. I drove up there and I was there early. I watched all the pregame shit and I remember seeing Shoemaker. I'm thinking, like, who's this old dude out here? Like, everyone else is young. And then there's this this coach that looks like he's just way older than everybody. And I'm standing there down the left field line just watching BP. And, and Robbie Garvey at the time was there. And he was the stolen base specialist, whatever. So he was just going into pinch run and steal. Robbie came over, talked to me for a little bit. And then Shoemaker walked over and basically was like, hey, who are you? I'm like, what? Like, I'm, oh, I'm here to watch my brother. I know just by chance, no Garvey. And we yeah. stood and talked there for 15, 20 minutes. And, and I don't know if he remembers that at all. But to me, it was like, holy shit, like, that guy's the man. He has no idea who I am. I'm just a guy in the stands. And he came over and he wanted to know everything about me. And that's kind mm-hmm. of just developing that pers- that relationship and getting to know people. I mean, I'm sure he does that with everybody in the organization. And, yeah. and, and hearing you uh, sing his praises, like... I, I've never really talked to anybody else about him, but that conversation is something that I will never forget. He, so my, uh, my first game after I got hired by the Dodgers and I'm, I'm, we're playing at the Reds place and you know, I, I'm all excited. I'm not doing anything. I think I'm just keeping a, a chart on the hitters. Yeah. Still nervous. Like I'm going to go play or something. Um, and you know, shoes there and it was my first game. And so I'm all jacked up to sit there and watch the game and like we finish up the game ends and like he brings everybody up and throws me a ball and he's like hey this is tony's first game um you know first pro game first win you know gives me a ball i was like wow that's like that's really cool you know i didn't really have anything to do with this like this (laughs) win or this you know i just got here yeah um hit some ground balls today and that's really all my involvement was in, in today's win um, but for him to recognize me, I thought like, wow, that's, that's really cool. I mean, obviously he gets that 
this is an important thing for me. It's an important day in my, in my career. And hopefully, you know, the first of many moving forward. Mm -hmm. So we get done, packed up our stuff and, and we're walking out and the whole team's walking out. All the coaches are walking out and I look back and he's by himself in the dugout picking up cups. And I'm like, Oh boy. So of course, you know, I drop my stuff, go back and, and I'm starting to pick up cups with him. And now I think every day when we're leaving a dugout, we just kind of instinctually pick up cups. Um, he didn't say anything and he wasn't going to ask anybody to go do it with him or pick anything up for him or anything like that. It was just kind of like he knew that cups had to be picked up. And so he was going to pick the cups up and if other people help him, then great. But for a staff member, I'm not going to be the guy that is walking away while John Shoemaker is picking up cups. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to let him carry stuff out while I'm empty handed and, and, you know, texting you or whoever else. Um, you know, it's just kind of leading by example. And to me that that's just an incredible sign of leadership where, he didn't have to say anything and nor would he ever say anything. Um, but just seeing him do that, it, it makes you want to kind of take over and, and carry that torch a little bit. Yeah. I've always had a hard time, uh, rooting for the Dodgers just growing up in Northern California and, and giants Dodgers rivalries is, is not going anywhere. But no. now it's like, I almost like meeting him and, and seeing the kind of guy he is and then knowing you and, 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 mm -hmm. and Mark and, and knowing Walker personally, like mm -hmm. it's hard to want you guys to lose, you know, <laughs> like I know, yeah. I know how many great people are in the organization and, and it's, it's a, uh, as I've like grow up and I realize like, I mean, I can hate the Dodgers as much as I want and want them to lose. But at the same time, I want them to do well because I want all of you to be successful. Yeah, I think they've done a really good job of getting like really good dudes in there and understanding that we spend a lot of time together and we don't want to be around people that suck. Yeah. And overall, you have guys that you know like they're going to get in, they're going to roll their sleeves up and go to work. Um, they're going to they're going to work, they're going to learn, um, they're going to be accountable. You know, because again, like you said, with the technology, like if you say something, you write something about a player, you talk about a player you know, you, you're, whatever it is, you're backing a player up. Like you better have evidence of that because they will hold you accountable as much as it's a tight knit, close group and family. Like, um, there are people that are going to hold you accountable. And I think if you don't have that accountability, it takes away from that atmosphere. It can be fun and everyone's happy all the time. If nobody's holding you accountable, you don't really have a, a any sort of stress to, to do your job well. So yeah. knowing that you don't want to let the people down that you're around every day, plus there is an accountability factor to it, um, I think is what pushes guys to really want to want to strive to do a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I have the, <laughs> I'll never forget this, the day that we were, we were downplaying ASU or whatever, and you basically gave me all access to spring training. Yep. And I said to you, I was like, hey, can you give me some swag? Like knowing I'm never, I'm never going to wear a Dodgers thing. And you're like, I can't, what am I going to do? Like, no one's going to give yeah. me anything extra. I barely get the clothes that I have on now. And then Walker comes up and I'm like, hey, can I get a jacket? <laughs> he goes, do you, remember, do, you remember what he, do you remember what he said? Because he was standing there right as you asked me. I don't he, remember exactly he, what he said. Great face. He goes, I said, I, I can't really get it. And he goes, I got way more pull than you. And he walks up and gets it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you do. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's, I've, I think I've only like, put it on one time just to like yeah. be an asshole to somebody, but it's still hanging up in my, in my closet and it, it makes yeah. me laugh every time I see it. But Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could probably get me a pullover now. We could talk about it. We could talk about it. Um, <laughs> okay. The last thing that I want to talk about before I let you get back to your uh, quarantining, um, this this coronavirus situation has have, has obviously turned the sports world on its head. Mm -hmm. 
you and I, we almost, I really wanted to start a Twitter war with you just because it's always fun to go back and forth yeah. with you. And it's, it's always comical and other people might think we're, we're actually serious, but we know that like deep down we're, we're just screwing around. Yeah. But every organization seems to have handled it differently. Every like major sports league has handled it a little bit differently. And then when the NBA shut down, it's everyone kind of just the dominoes fell. I want to know like how it progressed for you guys, because on a personal like level for me, it was at first I'm like, ah, the fuck we're fine. Like we're young. We're not going to get sick. Like I'm not really going out and hanging out in bars a lot. It's whatever. And it was kind of something that we ignored and blew off just as a whole in our house. And now it's become much more serious. We are stocked with food. We're not leaving the house. We're just entertaining ourselves. So how did the Dodgers handle it from the beginning to to now? Like I don't, I have no idea what what you're doing now. You know, I mean, they handled it about as well as you can possibly expect, given the circumstances. Like this is such a strange. Is that, is that Joey? You're yeah. smirking. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, is it Tony? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this is such a like strange, unprecedented times. Captain Joseph, James. hello. How are you? So good. How are you? I'm better now, buddy. God, you're handsome. Well, yeah. It's good to see you. Good to see you, man. All right, carry on. Okay, bye. I'll bring him back in when we're done with, with, with our serious conversation. Um, but, you know, like, we're this is just a, a super unprecedented time. Like, we've never had to deal with anything like this in, in our lifetime. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a lose-lose, like, society-wise, because yeah, I don't want to say it's a like if people feel like it's overhyped, if it's overblown and you know, all of a sudden people start getting like gravely ill, then they're going to have somebody to blame. If people don't take precautions and they get sick, they're going to blame somebody. You know, if they get as prepared as they're telling us we need to be, um, and they don't get sick, then they're going to say, you know, every, everything was right. All the numbers were right. All the experts were right. Um, so it, it's just very weird. I think you're, you're dealing with people who either believe it or they don't believe it. Um, hopefully people are just staying inside and staying away. We haven't left the house. Like we, we went and did our shopping for the apocalypse and like, we're staying in. Um, I, I just, yeah, we're going to, we're going to err on the, the safe side. Yeah. So just your organization though, you, I mean, you, you made it clear on the phone, the conversation we had the other day, uh, the communication was good they let you know like hey we it's kind of a shit show right now we really don't yeah. know what's going on but we will let you know as soon as we know yeah there's and that's again like our uh, our leadership like they've been incredible it, the hardest part is like they don't know either nobody knows everybody is in like a wait and see mode because we don't know what's going to happen like they're expecting this massive spike in numbers it's like okay well once that spike happens, can we go back to work or do we have to wait till there's no more cases? Like at what point do they allow us to go back to work? Mm-hmm. They're going to look out for the staff. They're going to look out for the players versus, you know, pushing it and, and trying to like push the envelope and get us back to work before it's uh, it's safe to do so. Mm-hmm. I, I don't envy the position that our leadership is in and they've done an incredible job of communicating with us and letting us know, quite honestly, like they don't know either because nobody knows. And you start to hear from, you know, other organizations, what they're doing and everybody's kind of like, it's, it's just wait and see everything's up in the air. You know, obviously the the player's safety comes first and making sure that they are home there with their families, um, staying 
hopefully taking the warnings of, you know, not, uh, not going out in public and not being stupid about it. But then on the flip side, like these guys are professional athletes. Like they want to stay ready. They're the ones that are suffering. And, and I'm talking baseball wise, not like society Yeah, yeah. in this situation for us. Like they're the ones that are suffering because they're the ones that really had to work to get themselves in shape between like October and spring training. And these guys get themselves in shape. They're ready to go. Some guys have been here in Arizona since mid January. You know, some guys came in a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of March and like, we're ready to roll. And we're a couple of weeks away from breaking camp. And all of a sudden this happens and they got to go home and then they got to kind of cool it down. And then they're going to have to ramp back up. And that unknown I'm sure for the players is just, it's got to be brutal. Yeah. I mean, I, we have Ames is staying with us right now and he's like, I don't do, I take a week off. Like also, what am I supposed to do? I can't go to the gym. I can't, no. he, he, there's nowhere really to, I mean, we could go, we have a hundred baseballs in the garage. Like, what are we going to mm-hmm. do? Go toss them like short toss into a fence. It's kind of a, it's a weird situation where like, what do I do? Do I work out? Do I take time off? But if I'm going to work out, where do I go? Like, am I yeah. doing prison workouts in the backyard, which it's kind of what it's going to come to. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's just super strange. And I, I mean, it's, on a personal level for everybody, it's scary because you don't know, like first they're like, Oh, it's only old people that are going to get sick. And now they're saying like, it could like have really dramatic effects on younger people and it could like absolutely crush them. And then you, the hospitals are overloaded. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but it's like baseball for people is something that like, especially in the United States, it's something to rally behind and something like so many people are in love with. If you think about, I mean, this obviously is a di- different situation than 9-11. But if you think about when that happened and mm-hmm. everybody rallied around baseball, it was yeah. like that was something to be happy about and be something into. So I think when it's going to be super strange when it comes back because like, oh, baseball is back. And then we got to go back into like, two, three weeks of spring training, whenever mm-hmm. that may be, and then go into a season. So, I mean, I think it'll help tremendously to get people's mind off shit when it does come but it's like hopefully yeah. when baseball gets back all of this is blown over and, and the, the hard part too like you're right everyone says it's only old people well you know my my parents are in that category you know my mother-in-law is in that category they're they're in that age that age bracket where it's like well you know i like i like them a lot i love my parents and i don't want anything to happen to them so for, I, I can't just blow it off and go well it's only old people well you know that that would in that case include my parents and mm-hmm. You know, I don't want anything to happen to them. So I want them to also practice like that social distancing and, and stay away from other people that, that may, you know, contract this. And, and you're right. Like this is for this new generation. Like this is something that is very unprecedented. They didn't have to go through like nine 11 and like you said, not comparing it to nine 11, but like that feeling of uncertainty is very similar and you know, like what's going to happen next. Um, and I think just from a baseball perspective, like the trickle down from this is going to be very strange. who knows what's going to happen with the draft. I mean, that's, there's no college baseball. There's no high school baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have a draft in June, like, like it's planned. I mean, what's going to happen to minor league baseball? How far are they going to push that season back? How far are they going to push major league baseball back? Are they going to extend minor league and major league baseball into the fall? You know, we have no idea what's going to happen. And, you know, the only thing we can do now is kind of stay prepared and hopefully stay in contact with some of our players and just make sure they're good and their families are good and, you know, promote the the social distancing, as they say, and, and keep them healthy because the last thing we need is those guys getting sick. Um, you know, they lose a bunch of weight and then they, you know, have to come back and have a, <clears throat> excuse me, have a longer road to ramp back up whenever spring training, you know, commences. Yeah. I mean, 
we've you i've been practicing social distancing for like the last five years of my life so this is no good oh, yeah. for me um, yeah yeah we're good yeah totally fine uh the one thing that i think i mean i have i've kind of like played out different scenarios in my head and the way that i think it, it might happen is if major league baseball extends into the fall it's gonna change because you, everyone's playing later, regardless of whether you're in the playoffs or not. Your your mm-hmm. off season's gonna off season's gonna be shorter, and then you got to go wow. take a month and a half off, two months off, whatever it is. But I think it's gonna enact a positive change in baseball where they realize, like, okay, spring training is way too long. Okay, let's ma- let's make it a little bit quicker, less games in spring training, and mm-hmm. I mean that's my hope because I mean spring training is long as hell. Like well, guys showing even- up in January. Mm-hmm. Even the, the flip side with like college baseball, I'm really interested to follow along what's going to happen with like the NCAA. I mean, they, they said they're going to grant those seniors or whoever, you know, that year of eligibility back, you know, and that's great. I think that's probably the right thing to do. But now you're dealing with, you've got incoming freshmen, those seniors in high school aren't getting that year back. So now you're going to have, you know, are they going to eliminate the roster size issues that they've had? Um, you know, to be able to bring in those new freshmen and keep those seniors and possibly those, you know, juniors that weren't drafted, you know, are these juniors re- replaying their junior year Are the sophomores now draft eligible, you know, they're, they've got a lot of things. NCA is going to have a lot of things to sort out with this. Um, even scholarships, you know, you're going to have guys that are, you know, do you take away that 27, um, or 11.7 scholarship limit and, you know, I, I don't know. Do you honor the ones that you that you uh, sign guys to? You know, they're in high school. Like, there's a lot of things that work. Mm-hmm. You know, junior college guys, guys that are sophomores that had signed to go to Division One school. Are they going to still get their scholarship, or do they have to redo their? Are they automatically going to have to redo their set their sophomore year in junior college? Yeah, it's. I mean, it really is going to be crazy to see how that figures that all plays out. Especially, yeah. I mean, obviously, Major League Baseball has a tremendous amount of resources to figure out how they're going to handle it yeah. if, if the draft's going to be smaller i would imagine that like almost no kids out of high school are going to be drafted because they had no senior seasons and nobody really is able to see them play at all really mm-hmm. so but you have college guys you know how they performed the year before uh yeah. but the eligibility thing the scholarship thing is going to be weird i mean across every sport and it's not just baseball because a lot of people are get screwed like football is going to be kind of the same but 11.7 scholarships that's going to have to expand whether you mm-hmm. don't count seniors whether you expand it to 20 scholarships whatever it is it, i mean it's going to be an absolute shit show and and i feel bad for the people that have to figure it out uh, it's it's going to be an absolute nightmare yeah and, and depending on how long it pushes back i mean is it going to affect college football in the fall you know because now you're talking about you know baseball is one thing but now football the you know the money maker for some of these universities like that's going to be potentially affected if it gets pushed back too far if guys can't practice in the spring and summer you can't start your, your football season on time so yeah. you know i don't envy the people that have to make those decisions you know i'm just hoping that you know we can get back to work as as soon as possible as soon as it's safe and you know good luck to the people that have to make those choices yeah no kidding all right well i'll uh i'll let you go but i mean hopefully the next time we do this you're going to be in a hotel room on the road or something or you we can do one in person when you come buy a house in vegas and- I'll be there in June. Cool. So I'll be here too. All right, Tony. I love you. Love you, buddy. I'm not Thanks afraid. I'm not afraid to say it. Completely open about Seriously, it. Seriously, keep the beard going though. It looks really good. I think I think I'm gonna get mine going back long again just because Yeah, it's gonna we'll be, see how long this gray keeps going. I mean, it's not gonna go back to being brown. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
You're not getting any younger. I, well, it, it, it's only a matter of time before my head shaved and, and I have gray everywhere. Yeah, you have those power alleys and that little bald spot back oh, here. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know, though. I have I have solid hair. I've, I've only ever yeah. known you as bald, not bald, sha- yeah. shaved head. Yeah, it's it's too thick. It goes all over the place, so. Yeah. So oh, so you, you went for the it's too thick and you shaved it rather than. I have nothing to do with it. Yeah, I can't. I can't gel it and spike it like it's 96 anymore. So I just, I'm going to trim it up and yeah. Well, no matter what you do, you're handsome as hell. So it's all that matters. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Anytime. Anytime.